Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Coral and Morning. We are your co-hosts, Jason Crawford and Mono Lombardo, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. May 20th will mark the 10-year anniversary of the enactment of the Fraud Enforcement and Recovery Act of 2009, FARA, which introduced important changes to the False Claims Act by amending the statute's provisions covering liability, retaliation, and civil investigative demands. In the more than 150 years since the FCA was signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln, the two most significant changes to the statute have been the seminal 1986 amendments and the 2009 changes made under FARA. And so we thought we'd use this episode as an opportunity to take a look back at the passage of the FARA amendments 10 years ago and to consider the practical impact that the amendments have had on the way that FCA cases are investigated and litigated today. Our guest is Brian Elmer, who is a retired Kroll & Morin partner. Brian was one of Kroll's founding partners and created the firm's FCA practice. I was at an ABA conference a couple of years ago at which a Relators Council was on a panel and was sharing a war story in which he referred to Brian as a lion of the defense bar. And associates here at the firm have been known to refer to Brian as the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the FCA. And so Mana and I are greatly pleased to have Brian as our guest to discuss the impact of the FAIR Amendments. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you, Jason. Welcome, Brian. Well, 2009 was the first time since 1986 that Congress made significant changes to the False Claims Act, as Jason mentioned, and FAIR was passed with broad support from both parties in Congress, which is, of course, pretty hard to come by these days. So, Brian, can you set the stage for the listening audience as to the historical context that prompted Congress to make those sweeping changes to the statute in 2009? As you both know, uh, the history of the Act is a long one, and it's one of adjustment, contracting, and expanding the Act. It was very quiet for a long period of time. World War II, however, brought constriction to eliminate copycat suits where the government had already criminally convicted the defendants. 1986 was a real turning point for substantially expanding the act, involving changes to the public disclosure bar, required intent, evidence standards, relator share, etc. The 86 amendments were largely the efforts of John Phillips, of the Phillips and Cohen law firm, and Senator Grassley. During the next 20 years, the act became the primary weapon against fraud against the government and a boon to the expanding, influential whistleblower bar. However, the courts were less enamored with the poorly drafted 86 amendments and perhaps somewhat askance at the increasing number of FCA complaints being filed. More and more cases were being dismissed by the courts to the dismay of the government and certainly the whistleblower bar. Thus the lawyers, the whistleblower lawyers, with some support from the government, returned to Congress, resulting in the 2009 amendments to overturn rulings that they considered roadblocks to successful FCA cases. The Supreme Court's decision in Allison Engines became a specific and primary target of the amendments. The economic circumstances in 2008 made for perfect timing 
to expand the act. Thanks, Brian. And it's interesting that you mentioned the drafting of the amendments because we were at the arguments in the Kachais consultancy case, and Judge Alito made that observation during oral argument that this is a, a poorly drafted statute and the amendments didn't help. Speaking of the Supreme Court, you mentioned the Allison Engine decision. Mona, can you briefly touch upon the court's holding and describe how Congress responded? Sure, Jason. So one of the most significant impacts of FARA was that it made obsolete the Supreme Court's 2008 decision in Allison Engine Company versus United States Exo Sanders. In Allison Engine, the issue before the Supreme Court was whether false claims made by subcontractors to prime contractors could form the basis of FCA liability if the claims were not presented to the government. The Supreme Court considered the language of Section 3729A2 of the FCA at the time, which imposed liability on anyone who knowingly makes, uses, or causes to be made or used a false record or statement to get a false or fraudulent claim paid or approved by the government. So focusing on the to get language, the court held that a plaintiff must prove that the defendant intended that the false record or statement be material to the government's decision to pay. That was a big holding. And then in response to Allison Engine, the FARA amendments eliminated that to get language upon which the Supreme Court had relied, broadening the scope of potential liability. So after FARA, the provision is now codified at Section 3729AB and imposes liability on anyone who knowingly makes, uses, or causes to be made or used a false record or statement material to a false or fraudulent claim. And because of the length of the FCA's statute of limitations, which can go back to 10 years, we're still dealing with cases today where the underlying allegations in the complaint straddle the fairer amendments. Mona, do you want to touch upon the effective date for this change and why Congress chose that date? Right. Ferris stated that the amendment to Section 3729A2 shall take effect as if enacted on June 7, 2008. That was the date on which Allison Engine was decided. And that it'll apply to all claims under the FCA that are pending on or after that date. In other words, Congress really sought to amend the FCA retroactively to eliminate any application of the Supreme Court's Allison Engine decision. Thanks. You almost have to feel a little bit bad for the law clerks that stayed up into the wee hours drafting that opinion only to have Congress override it. Right. They basically obliterated the main part of the decision. So in 2008, the year before FARA's passage, there were 379 KETAMs filed. Since the passage of FARA, the average number of new suits per year is around 600. And in recent years, it's hovered closer to 700. Brian, is this just a coincidence or is there some sort of correlation between the amendments and this uptick that we're seeing in KETAM suits? There is certainly some kind of correlation, but there were other developments that played into the increase in False Claims Act complaints. In the previous 20 years, a substantial plaintiff's bar had developed, and they had the capital and the experience necessary to develop and fund FCA actions. That bar also included a number of former Department of Justice attorneys from the fraud section. Secondly, I guess, significant successful key TAM recoveries enriched whistleblowers and their lawyers 
exciting others, especially those who had been terminated in the downturn to the prospect of big rewards. And finally, the amendments made it more difficult for defendants to obtain early dismissals of complaints and therefore raise the likelihood that they would agree to settle. Thanks, Brian. Let's also talk about FARA's impact on the government's ability to investigate FCA cases. We did a previous podcast episode focused on the use of civil investigative demands as an investigative tool, but CIDs were not previously used as frequently as they are today by the Department of Justice. So can you describe what the norm used to be and how practices have changed with the passage of FARA? The norm was no such thing as the CID, really. Prior to 2009, it required the signature of the Attorney General himself. Thus, it required a substantial amount of paperwork by trial attorneys at DOJ or AUSAs in the field, preparing memoranda to the Attorney General himself. Most lawyers at DOJ were not familiar with the CID procedure and process, and my guess is it was simply considered not worth the effort. In addition, if they were successful, it resulted in the extra cost to the government of taking, in effect, complicated depositions. Right, so much different from how easy it is today to just issue a CID and obtain pretty significant pre-litigation discovery. Well, FIRA also made changes to allow for DOJ to share information obtained by the Attorney General or a designee with any key TAM relator if that was deemed necessary to the investigation. Jason, can you tell us a little bit about how often you're seeing that happen in your practice? So I don't get the impression that this is happening as a matter of course, but when it does happen, it can have a real impact at the pleading stage. The government may decide to decline, but then turn over information to the relator that the defendant had produced in response to the CID. The relator can then use this information to amend the complaint, thereby increasing the chances that the relator will clear the heightened pleading requirements of 9b and increasing their chances of surviving a motion to dismiss. Great. So let's turn to the materiality standard. Congress added new definitions to the statute as part of the FARA amendments, including a definition for the term material, which is defined as having a natural tendency to influence. Brian, what was the reaction amongst the bar when the change was made? And what do you make of the fact that in Escobar, the Supreme Court essentially paid lip service to the statutory definition of material, but then really it drew heavily from the common law when discussing this element. Well, I guess I could make three comments. Over the past decade, there have been more Supreme Court cases involving the False Claims Act than in the first hundred years of the Act's life. And there has been a lot of tension between industry groups, TAF and the Chamber of Commerce, Congress and the courts. Materiality is just the latest example of the courts showing some unease with overreach from the statute. In addition, I think that society has always had mixed opinions regarding whistleblowers, especially those who do so for money or advantage. The president, you may recall, has called them rats. And so I think some of that attitude exists in the courts 
and they are not as willing to simply allow these kinds of cases to go ahead without a more thorough review. Interesting. Okay. Well, as far as the definitions go, Congress also added a definition of obligation as part of the 2009 amendments, which has had an impact on cases brought under a reverse false claims act theory of liability. Jason, do you want to touch on the reasons why Congress added this particular definition? Sure. So the reverse false claim provision was first added to the statute as part of the 1986 amendments, and this provision established liability for anyone who made misrepresentations or knowingly concealed an obligation to pay money to the government. But the courts were split on the question of whether the obligation had to be for a fixed dollar amount to trigger liability. And so in other words, someone might owe money to the government, but they could possibly escape liability if the exact amount owed had not been established. And so to clear up this uncertainty, Congress responded by adding a definition of obligation to the statute to clarify that liability can attach so long as there's an established duty to pay money to the government, even if the amount owed is not yet fixed. And so one upshot of this change is that we're seeing a steady rise in the number of cases, including a cause of action under the reverse false claim provision. And this is especially true in the realm of international trade. Sounds like a topic for a whole nother podcast. I think so. <laughs> Which we might do. Well, so let me take a step back and ask a big overview question here. Brian, of all the changes that were made by FARA, what do you think has had the most lasting impact on FCA enforcement? It's hard to identify a single one of those, Mana. I guess if I had to, I would say it's the presentment issue decided by Allison, certainly from the enforcement side. On the defense side, I don't see any of the amendments that were helpful to defendants. So much of today's episode has been backward-looking on FARA's impact over the past 10 years. But Brian, we're interested to hear your take as the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the FCA as to where you think FCA practice is headed in the next 10 years. Well, you both know well of in the history of the act, it was used primarily against suppliers of goods for the military, going back to its origination. In recent years, the focus has been on health care with forays into smaller areas. The key to the future is very simple. It's that old Watergate saying, follow the money. If billions are appropriated for infrastructure, expect false claims actions there. The same is true of any new big government program. Jason noted the reverse aspect of claims, and I would be very surprised, for example, if the tariffs that the president has proposed go forward, that there are False Claims Act cases increasing in that area because it will involve big money. Well, you heard it all here from the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the FCA. Thank you so much, Brian. And that's all for this episode. We want to thank Brian for joining us today to discuss the impact of the FARA amendments on False Claims Act investigations and litigations. If you have any questions, I can be reached at 213-443-5563 and Jason at 202-624-2562. We'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca. FCA.